0: Hey everyone, before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. It's so good to be here with you. Uh, My name is Rob, and my wife, Caroline, and I have been part of Discovery for um, a few years now, and it's always an honor to get to um, share God's Word with you uh, a little bit. And um, in this case, continue on in the series that Avery started last week and did such a great job with. And, and really, my initial goal is to see if I can get you to track with me for eight seconds or more, which I possibly have already done or not done, depending. And, and why I say that is because there was a fairly popular study that came out in 2015 that said between the time of 2012 or 2010 and 2015, the average attention span for an American had slipped from 12 seconds down to 8 seconds. And then it went on to say that the average attention span of a goldfish is 9 seconds. <laughs> so you can do the math and kind of draw the conclusion of that particular study, right? Well, since that time, some of that study has been debunked a little bit or, or brought under, under question. But the thing that there does seem to be consensus on by those who study how our, our brain works, how we're able to kind of center our thoughts on a particular thing, is that um, more and more it's, it's becoming difficult for us, whether there's a lot of stimuli or no stimuli, to kind of be present in, or, or to be, um, present in the present, right? To really track with what's going on in the actual motive. And, and I think what happens sometimes, what, what people who have, have concluded is like, it's really important to pay attention to your attention because if you're not paying attention to your attention, your attention can start going down the wrong track. And all of a sudden you can find yourself in a really difficult place because rather than being fully present in the present, you're allowing the past or the future to capture your thoughts and sometimes your motives and sometimes what you're really leaning into from a life perspective. Several years ago, I decided to do a very cultured thing, and I took my dear wife to an opera. And, and I know people online can't fully do this, but just pretend that you can't. Is there any, who, Who's gone to an opera? I'm just curious. Who's gone to an opera? Okay, going to that opera, how many of you liked that opera after you'd gone to it? Okay, about 14.5%. Okay, good. Um, so I love music, and I, I think there are certain aspects of the arts that I, that I really love I don't really like operas because I'm not sure what's going on, and it feels to me like people are just trying to ruin music. That's what it seems like, right? So we're at this opera. I'm trying with all my might to engage, to be present, to be mindful. And honest, we're about six minutes in, and I fell asleep. And I woke up sometime later only to discover that my left, left hand was on the leg of a woman who was not my wife. And and the scariest thing is she didn't seem to mind. And my wife still laughs about that to this day. Well, you can be sure at that moment I had no problem staying awake and I was mindful the rest of the opera. See, here's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the basic human ability to be fully present Aware of where we are and what we're doing and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by by what's going on around us. Again, the experts who who study Focus have gone back to, man, it's really important that we have a good understanding of, of what our minds are paying attention to. Because if we're not careful, instead of being mindful, we will always slide into this mindfulness state. And it's hard to operate. It's hard to be productive. It's hard to be loving. It's hard to be engaging when we're mindless. Mindless. So this priority that, that I'm going to talk about, it's really found throughout, throughout the Bible. Um, we can go to Romans. All this is what, what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, by the, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and Perfect. We jump over to Philippians. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I would challenge myself and maybe all of us to say, has that described us over the last year? I mean, where's your mind been the last year? Because it's, it's pretty easy to just do the opposite of what was just described there. And then the last one, he says, um, from the message, he says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. (laughs) And so we're in this series titled, Twisted Good, from God's character To our control. And it's about being mindful of God's character. It's about being aware of our own shortcomings and how Jesus really is the one that can keep us twisting our life into knots through our own devices. And so this week we contrast God as forgiver with us as grudge holder. And some of you, because I just mentioned that, are going to hold a grudge against me. I know that's how that works, right? See, I think I can be a grudge holder at times. I mean, there's a phone company that I've held a grudge against for about 26 years. Um, just, just confessing that to you. Um, it could be airlines. I mean, it can be something with the, your cable provider. Uh, it, it can all, all kinds of things. But, but someone that wronged me, right? And you may say the same thing. Man, if you feel wrong, do you possibly hold a grudge? My wife can often see this brewing inside of me, and she always says the same thing. She looks at me and she says, they're dead to you, right? And I'm like, yes, they are. They're dead to me, right? And so I ask, are you holding a grudge this morning in some way? I mean, maybe it's not a real deep grudge. Maybe you still are holding a grudge against someone who turned you down for a date in high school. Maybe it's a little more weighty. Maybe it's a neighbor, a coworker, a coach. Most people, their grudges are against family members. And I think weirdly, sometimes we hold a, gr- a grudge against inanimate objects like the garden hose that won't refuse to kink. Or the ice maker that always jams, right? It's like, man, I, don't, I hate that thing. And we hold a grudge against something like that, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Maybe it's a sports team that beat your sports team or is a rival. Or maybe it's a political party. Or maybe it's people who affiliate with one of those things. You just kind of hold a grudge against them. And I think sometimes we can hold a grudge against someone long after we remember why we held a grudge against them in the first place, but we just know it feels good to hold a grudge. And so some of us, we just like holding grudges because we think it makes us better and makes us feel a little bit better. Some of us, we like to go beyond just holding grudges and we want to act on those grudges. We, instead of saying forgive and forget, we're like remember and revenge. And we're, we're saying, you know what? I'm going to bury the hatchet all right, but it's not in a productive way. Sometimes we think that. But either way, here's the thing that I don't think we always understand. It's not you holding a grudge, it's the grudge holding you. Every time you don't hold a grudge, a grudge holds you. And I think all of this grudge holding is rooted in unforgiveness. And of course, most often it's deeper and it's more personal. And it's attached attached to a true way that we've been wronged, that we've been violated. A way that we've been hurt. And, And so what do we do? Well, the thing I want you to remember, and I'm going to say a bunch th- today, is grace the grudge. Grace the grudge. Just remember that. Just grace the grudge. And, and again, I, I say this knowing that some, some, um, some of you, there's, there's unforgiveness issues, there's grudge holding that is related to really, really deep and painful things that either did happen or have happened. Maybe it's abuse or neglect or abandonment or or other devastating things. And so I'm not trying to offer an easy answer. In fact, I think you're going to see I'm I'm offering something much different than that. Nor in any way am I trying to minimize your experience or, or your pain. In fact, again, I really want to do the opposite while also suggesting a pathway forward that can provide healing and can provide hope. And I know that for some, maybe the next step is to kind of reach out to the good people here at Discovery who offer counseling or can connect you with counselors or offering help. You can find it on, on the website because sometimes there's these deep remnants of hurt and forgiveness that you need to work through with someone else. So, so if you're in that situation, I, w- I can't encourage you enough to, to reach out and get help to work through your grudge holding, to work through issues of unforgiveness. And so... With all that kind of laid out, let me, let me lay the framework here for where we're going. Again, from Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 2, this is Paul. It's a specific letter to a specific church at a specific time, but it relates to all of us because it conveys the character of God. It, con- it conveys God's instructions to us in other places, so it's practical for us to lean into. And here, here's what it says. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for." Us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as God in Christ forgave you. You know what that is? That's grace extended to us, right? Being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving others, that's grace extended by us, to others. See, we can extend grace because we've been given grace. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. And the more that we embrace that reality, then the less that we will be prone to hold grudges. So I want to unpack the terms a little bit just so we we have a broader understanding and, and starting with grace. I mean, what's grace? I mean, what is grace? Grace is favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. So for example, if you're a parent and you have a kid, and your kid's basically been a jerk for a little while, right? Your kid has maybe um, been ungrateful. Maybe they've been a little bit rebellious. You know what? You are still going to care for them and provide for them and all of that, even though um, they may not deserve it, right? Because they're an undeserving recipient, but you're still an obligated giver. Okay, so that's one thing. But if that kid is, is playing some sport and they have this amazing coach and you want to give the coach an appreciation gift at the end of the season because of your gratitude, well, that's an unobligated gift, but they're certainly a deserving recipient. So you've got those two things. Grace is when both are together. See, grace is when both are true. Like when you have a neighbor who steals vegetables from your garden, Lies about you on the next door app. I hear that's a thing. Taps into your cable, bites your dog, but she gets sick and you take care of her. And you pay her doctor bills. You clean her house. You feed her kids. You stay with her until she recovers. See, that's an unobligated giver to an undeserving recipient. That's grace. That's what grace is. But grace is more than that. It's also this freely given love, forgiveness, acceptance, presence, and help of God. I mean, it's forgiveness. Jesus lived a life we can never live, and it was credited to us while taking on our life, while taking on our sin. He went to the cross paying the price for the life that we are living and have lived. He died He was resurrected. He had victory over our greatest enemies, evil and and sin and and death. And through him, we have life. It's, it's, It's acceptance. We're an adopted child of God, we have a seat at the table. Jesus is our big brother, we're family. It's God's presence. It's his active help in our lives. We have a father who is always there. He's with us to provide counsel, to help us grow, to protect us, to help us recover, to help us understand and experience what real freedom is. See, Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, to transform us from what we are, and that's sinners that are separated from God, into what we're becoming, individuals more and more like Jesus that are going to be with him forever. I really appreciate what the author, Paul Tripp, says. He said this. He said, Grace will blow up your little kingdoms of one while it introduces you to a much more glorious king. Grace will work to expose your blindness while it gives you eyes to see. Grace will drive you to the end of yourselves while it holds before you the promise of a fresh start and new beginnings. You know what that is? That's grace holding you. That's what happens when grace gets a hold of you. So that's the grace side of the equation. So, so let's dig in a little bit. Well, what's a grudge? Well, a grudge, I mean, at its core, it's nurtured anger. I mean, anger in and of itself isn't bad. I mean, if you get angry over injustice of some kind, of, of sex trafficking, of, of someone that it, that's innocent has been harmed, of, of things like that, it, it's good to get angry. But, but anger is bad when it's for self-centered reasons. The Apostle Paul wrote, um, he said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And basically what he's saying there is if you've got anger, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with that anger. See, when we nurture anger, instead of dealing with it, there's this gap that's created and it's in that gap where Satan will wreak all kinds of havoc and you end up being enslaved to the grudge. I think anger can be a bit like milk. Right? I mean, milk's fine. It's okay. But you know what? Milk has an expiration date always. And it can go bad. I mean, if it's nurtured out on the counter for too long, that milk is going to go bad and all of a sudden becomes something that's going to make you sick. Anger always comes with an expiration date. It always does. And so we have to be careful not to nurture it just to let it continue to fester in, in, inside of us. So it's, it's a grudge. That it's, it's, it's nurtured anger, but it's based on a sense of superiority. Listen, you can't stay angry with someone unless you feel superior to them in some way. And, and you may or may not believe that, but, but in challenge, you just think that through a little bit when you have time, that you can't stay angry with someone unless you feel superior to them. It's with this attitude that says, well, I would never do that. I can't believe they did that. I would never do something like that. And here's the thing that's what makes grudges so harmful. Because when you hold a grudge, you begin to ignore evidence that maybe you have sin. You begin to or ignore evidence that maybe you have your own weaknesses or your own shortcomings. Com- and then when you want vengeance, you can no longer be rational. I mean, you might punch a brick wall because you're angry at someone because you're holding a grudge. You may or may not know this, but that's not rational and how many of us someone has cut us off and we're out driving and immediately we're angry with them we hold a grudge against them in that 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 moment and we start driving like a maniac tailgating them or driving beside them can i just say something that's not rational And so when we hold a grudge we begin to not we begin to lose self-awareness of ourselves but then we also, there's this danger that we'll act in irrational ways and often toward other people that ends up destroying relationships. And the thing is that nursing a grudge, I get it, sometimes it feels really good because we've got this pent-up anger. We want to do something with it, so we just nurse this grudge along. But as many have said long, long before me, it's really like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what it's like. Listen, God lays out a pattern that we are to live by, right? We, we see it through the example of people who have followed him. We see it, what um, has been written um, in what we call the Bible. And, and there's, there's instructions in there. It's like, hey, you know what? Be honest. Be faithful. Be generous. Well, those things are in there because those are characteristics of God. We're created in God's image, and so we are to be those things, Well, God is forgiving, so we forgive. If you hold on to a grudge, what you end up doing is you're violating your design. I mean, it might feel like freedom, but it's like a fish who insists on being up in dry land. Well, enjoy your freedom. Right? Or maybe in a positive way, it's like the pianist that's not playing whatever keys they want, but following the guidelines, kind of living within the rules, disciplining him, herself to the rules of piano until she can freely play anything. So God's design on us is that we're forgivers, and when we choose not to forgive, we're going against that design. It's going to violate who we are and our ab- ability to function as God's created us to function. See, grudges are detaining, they restrain us, they're, they're destructive. God's grace is, is freeing, it's life-giving, it's really the antidote to holding a grudge. One of the best examples I know, there's a bunch of examples in the Bible, and we have examples in, in, in life in real time too, but, but one of my favorite is this guy named Naaman in the, in the Old Testament. We read about him in 2 Kings and he's kind of a guy who had it all. Here's what it says. It says Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So in other words, Aaron had it all, man. He had everything that anyone would ever want. He had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's mistress. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman comes back from war, actually, with Israel. He has unlimited influence. He has immense wealth. He has unrivaled power. But he also has this little patch of discolored skin. And it's the very thing that ended up turning his world upside down. And despite his position, despite his power, he was helpless against leprosy. But he brought one other possession back with him from Israel, a slave girl who hears that Naaman has leprosy and is going to die. So imagine for a second if you could somehow put yourself in her shoes, right? She has been ripped from her home her dreams of having a life of anything are probably crushed in every way possible. She lost her community, she lost her family, she kind of lost everything. You hear that the person who was responsible for that had leprosy. How are you feeling in that moment? Man, I've got to admit it's like I'm like good. Right? Good. I mean, think of that. I mean, here's Naaman, the man who ruined her life. He's at the top of the ladder of wealth and status and power. She's at the bottom. I mean, if there was ever anyone who deserved to hold a grudge, it was her. And again, I think in her place, many of us would probably be resentful. We would hold a grudge. We would maybe even be thrilled that Naaman had leprosy. And it's interesting because at this point in the story, the life of this all-powerful commander rests in the hands of of a seemingly powerless and certainly oppressed slave girl. And so what would she do? Would she hold a grudge? She didn't. She graced the grudge. She was kind. She was tender-hearted. She was forgiving. She offered help. The girl said, listen, I know this man named Elisha. He is filled with the power of God. He knows God. I've seen him heal people. He can heal you, Naaman. And it's so worth your time to read the rest of the story. It's, it's really a fascinating event. But it ends with the healed, with the humbled, with the grateful Naaman saying this. Now I know, now I know there is no God but this God, the God of Israel, and from this day forward he will be my God. And so the young slave girl, she graced the grudge. She put herself in God's hands, and in some way she became a deliverer of sorts she was unobligated, but granted favor to an undeserving person, and his life was changed forever. That's what grace does. Grace the grudge. It means to be kind and tenderhearted, even to those who are undeserving. See, when we embrace Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's going to produce in us a tender heart because we realize and we'll be humbled because it shows how badly we missed the mark that God set for us so badly that Jesus had to die. Yet we're gonna be affirmed and encouraged because it shows that we are absolutely loved and valuable to God and that he wanted to make us, to be a sacrifice for us. And if we get that to the degree that we get that, our heart will be tender. And out of that, our, mo- our motive to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to, to be, be generous, to extend grace will be right, especially to those who we'd see as maybe not deserving. And then we forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Almost always, almost always, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. We know that, right? I mean, we can forgive someone, but it doesn't really feel like we've forgiven someone and that's why we need grace. We usually believe we can't forgive someone because we're angry with them, right? We say, I'm just too angry, I can't forgive them. I would argue that the reason we're so angry with them is because we haven't forgiven them yet. But often we get that, that backwards and so we need grace. And the secret to being able to forgive is embedded in an understanding that you are a beloved child of God. And you know what beloved children do? They imitate their dad, right? It's just what they do. I mean, think about how little kids, little little boys, little girls will sometimes walk like, talk like, be like their dad who loves them, like the, the, the dad that they love. I mean, it's almost natural. When I was little and I hurt myself in some way, I cussed. Because my dad, when he hit his finger with the hammer, he cussed. So that's what I did, right? I wanted to be like my dad. My dad loved racing. I love racing. My dad worked especially hard. I'm a hard worker. My dad did not like to talk about his problems. I hate talking about my problems. It's really hard for me. See, being a child of God is not just Jesus did for me. My sins have been forgiven. I can live with him forever. That's obviously where our hope is based, and that's gigantic. But being a child of God means you have all these tremendous privileges. And I mentioned them just lightly before, but, but listen. I mean, just, just, just listen closely to what this means. If you have your faith in Jesus and you're, as a child, and you're a child of God, it means you're accepted. You're accepted. You don't live a life of condemnation and guilt. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean? It means there's no need to pretend to be something that you're not, because that's exhausting. You're accepted as you are for who you are. You have access to the King. You can go to him nonstop, 24 7, and he wants to hear from you. And it means that there's someone who truly loves you and, and truly understands every single thing that you're going through, good and bad. You're protected. He's the best dad. He's working all things together for good and we know sometimes that's really hard to believe and understand, but eventually we get to a point where like, okay, that was actually true. And that means that there is no one who is for you more than God is for you. I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe is for you more than anyone else is for you. It means you have an inheritance. If it's God's, it's yours. You're his child. If it's God's, it's yours. You can live with poise. You can live with humility. You can live with courage. Because here's the deal. There's no obligation or burden of any sort that can crush you. Man, if we really knew that, if if we believed that at our core, if we lived it, then I think forgiveness would honestly not be much of an issue for us. See, here's the deal. Your greatest problem in life, my greatest problem in life, exists inside you, not outside you. And that doesn't mean that you're responsible for something bad that happened. It doesn't mean the other person wasn't wrong, but it just means that you're responsible for how I respond now. No one else can be responsible for how you respond to the worst of things or the best of things or all the stuff in between. See, if, if you convince yourself that your problem is that person, That's my problem or that place or that situation, then rather than pursuing grace, you know what you're always going to be after? Just an easy answer to make it all right. Every single time. But if you wave the white flag and say, man, that person was way out of bounds. They wronged me. They hurt me, but I'm far from perfect myself. I need grace, they need grace, and I need help to extend grace because I don't have that in me right now, then you become fully, full of anticipation of how grace is gonna work itself in, through, in and through the situation. Listen, grudge holding is all about what's in you, not outside of you. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Hopefully this works. Imagine, and some of you, this will be really exciting. Others of you, this won't be that great, but just just pretend, all right? But imagine you owned 10 Lamborghinis, four brand new Dodge Ram pickups, two Jeeps, six Harley Davidson motorcycles, three Teslas, and a 1969 Barracuda with a 383, which would be amazing. And you had $16 million in the bank that was just set in a side account that was just for car money. Okay, imagine that someone comes to you and they want to borrow this other car you have. It's called a Prius Hybrid. And they take that Prius Hybrid out and they crash it, right? And it's destroyed and it's no good to anyone anymore. My guess is if all these other things were true, they come back to you and say, I crashed, destroyed the Prius. You're like, no big deal. Why? Because look at everything else I have. It just probably wouldn't be that big a deal even if they were pretty negligent in the whole thing. However, If that Prius is your only car, it's the one that you drive to and from work, it's the vehicle that you take your kids to school in, and there is no car money fund, and your friend crashes the car, well, it's going to be hard to forgive that debt that was created by that incident because your reserves are depleted. You desperately needed that car. You know what debts are? I think we know from an economic standpoint, right? But debts are things also that people have done to you that take forgiveness on your part. That's why when Jesus was teaching people to pray, he said, you pray this way. You say, forgive us our debts. That's what sin is. That's what what wrong things are. And so when people have wronged you, what they have actually done is they've robbed from you. And so if someone breaks confidence about something you've shared, if they falsely accuse you of something or they do something to make you seem incompetent to others, then they have robbed, they have stolen from your reputation. Listen, people can act in ways that can steal from our joy and our hope and our our sense of well-being, our honor, our confidence, all of those kind of things. And so what determines whether we forgive them or not? What determines if we move beyond just holding a grudge and allow grace to hold us? Well, here's what I believe, that if you are overflowing and crammed full of character and joy and hope and humble confidence and dignity and honor and worth and integrity because you know and believe that you are accepted and understood and protected and provided for by your heavenly Father who loves you so that there is no need to pretend to be something you're not because there is no obligation or burden of any sort that can crush you. Then when your reputation takes a hit because of what someone says or does, you meaningfully say, I forgive you. I got a lot more where that came from. And that was literally the longest sentence I've ever written in my entire life. (laughs) Listen, I'm gonna invite the band out. I'm gonna say this one more time and then we're gonna start wrapping things up. But imagine, I mean, if you are overflowing and crammed full of of character and joy and hope and humble confidence and dignity and, and honor and integrity because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're accepted and understood and protected and provided for by your heavenly Father who deeply loves you so that there is no need to pretend to be something you're not because there's no obligation, no burden, nothing that could ever happen that can crush you. Then when your reputation takes a hit because of what someone says or does, you meaningfully and often quickly say, I forgive you because there's this vast resource that's already inside of you that is has from God listen I truly believe that we forgive out of a spiritual and emotional abundance and we hold grudges because of a spiritual and emotional emptiness or poverty listen it's not stubbornness that keeps people from forgiving it's because I think we don't have enough emotional wealth to do it that's the real reason And shame and guilt and sin, you know what they do? They are just like punching a hole, punching a hole over and over again into our emotional well-being cup all the time. And that's why we must be continually mindful of Jesus. And I'm convinced if we spent the same amount of time sometimes for all the right reasons trying to work up the willpower to forgive someone, if we spent that same amount of effort and energy and time just understanding at a deeper way how much God loves us and who he is and and how protected and provided for we are and how our our identity is wrapped up in him, I'm convinced that forgiving would just flow out of us without maybe even trying. My dad died when I was 19. It was six days before my wedding, not not optimal, right? But you fast forward six years, and I'm teaching this Bible class on forgiveness. And right in the middle of the class, out of nowhere, I just start crying. And it was weird and it was it was awkward and I and I couldn't stop. And it was in that moment that I forgave my dad. You see, he had some health issues. And although I loved my dad deeply and I spoke very well of him and it was sincere, I also held a grudge because he did not take better care of himself. And I thought if he would have taken better care of himself, he would have been around for more time. And I didn't understand for a long time. It was like, well, why me truly forgiving him? Why did it just all of a sudden happen in that moment? I mean, I thought I had forgiven him. I kind of went through the motions. I said the right things, but then it hit me. In preparing for that study, I had immersed myself in studying the forgiveness of God. And it laid me bare and exposed me to my own failings, yet also developed in me a greater love and appreciation for my Heavenly Father and all that I had through Him, through His forgiveness of me. And suddenly the the inner poverty that I felt from losing my dad was replaced by an understanding of the abundance that I had in God. Forgiveness flowed from that. Jesus said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Listen, those verses are not about sabbatical. Those verses are not about rest how we would typically think about rest. You know what those verses are about? Dealing with guilt and shame. They're about dealing with guilt and shame, the things that will drain us of our well-being. And my prayer for us today as I close is this, that we would learn the unforced rhythms of grace, that we would lean into those so much so that we would be rid of grudges and that we would always grace the grudge. God, help us um, know that better. Help us to, to do that in a loving way. God, help us to lean into you with our hurts and our hopes and everything in between. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.